What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to Astros Baseball, a podcast by a fan for the fans of the Houston Astros. Here's your host, Rob Fontenot. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Astros Baseball. Got a special guest tonight, the author of Loserville, How Professional Sports Remade Atlanta and How Atlanta Remade Professional Sports. Clayton Truder, welcome to the show, buddy. Oh, Rob, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Looking forward to a fun discussion. So tell us a little bit about yourself. What's your background? I'm a history professor at Norwich University in uh, Northfield, Vermont. It's a small military college. Um, I hold a PhD in U.S. history from Boston College. I uh, work as a freelance writer for a lot of different publications, uh, writing primarily human interest stories about sports. I uh, write for SB Nation. I uh, run their Cincinnati Bearcats blog, Down the Drive. And I'm also the Vermont State Chairman of the Society for American Baseball Research. So I wear a lot of different hats in regards to sports history and sports research. So what gave you the idea to write a book, uh, Loserville, like about the Atlanta Braves and professional sports in Atlanta? What gave you the idea to do this? When I was in graduate school, I was looking around for a topic to write my dissertation about. Uh, My training is as a U.S. urban historian. So I wanted a story that was basically about American cities. And initially, my idea for a topic was writing broadly about the relocation of pro sports franchises on American cities, but that proved to be too much to uh, to bite off. So I looked for a particular city to write about that had been impacted by it. I thought about maybe writing about a city that had had lost its teams like Cleveland. Cleveland had faced off with its teams being lured from other cities, but I decided to go the other direction. I chose Atlanta because the politicians, the city leaders in Atlanta during the 1960s are the first group of city leaders in the country to make an explicit pitch for bringing pro sports to their community. There was a guy named Ivan Allen, who was mayor of Atlanta for most of the 1960s, and he ran from Atlanta on a mayor, on, on a platform of making Atlanta major league. We're going to build a stadium to lure professional football and um, professional baseball. We're going to build an arena to lure basketball, and eventually they got interested in hockey. I mean, Atlanta was the first city south of the Mason-Dixon line to have a major professional sports uh, hockey team. So Atlanta is certainly a forerunner in terms of this. So in many ways, the model that other cities use, trying to lure pro sports in the same way they would try to lure a factory 
or a, blank, a branch plant of a large corporation, Atlanta essentially invents this model of using taxpayer subsidies to lure in pro sports. So I was interested not only in the process of how Atlanta brought teams in, but also how the public responded to it. And it didn't turn, quite, turn out quite as their civic leaders had intended. They thought people would embrace these teams with open arms. They would become these very cherished civic uh, entities. It didn't quite happen that way. People in Atlanta already had sporting passions of all kinds, whether it was college football or auto racing or golf or boating or even professional wrestling. And people continued to embrace those to a much greater extent than the people in the city leadership thought thought they would. Um, the pro sports teams in town, in many ways, uh, never really took control in the way that the city's leaders had, had envisioned it. And what I found is that this, in many ways, happened in a lot of cities, that just because you bring these shiny new uh, organizations into town doesn't mean the people who live there or the people who've relocated there are going to make it the center of their lives. And that's essentially what Loserville is. It's a cautionary tale about cities maybe not biting off more than they can handle when bringing in pro sports franchises. So what sport did they bring first? Was it the Atlanta Braves? Absolutely. They viewed baseball because Still in the mid-1960s, baseball is the country's most popular sport. It's really over the course of the 1970s that the NFL becomes the most popular of the four major sports. So base, bringing in a Major League Baseball franchise, I think they saw as the most prestigious of the four leagues. So this became their particular focus. And Atlanta builds a stadium to try to bring in a pro sports franchise. They, they try to lure the Cleveland Indians. They try to lure the uh, Kansas City Athletics. Uh, but it ends up being the Milwaukee Braves who end up being in search of a new home and uh, come to terms with, with Atlanta, um, bringing them to a much larger television market in the southeast. In Milwaukee, the Braves had Chicago on one side. They had the Minnesota Twins bordering them on another side. They were very hemmed in. In the southeast, they came into a, into a media market where they basically were the only thing going for like six states around it. Um, I mean, until you get to Texas, there really was not another big city that seemed like a possible major league city at the time. So Atlanta was was the center of this huge fruit, uh, huge uh, and potentially fruitful marketplace that uh, Milwaukee's owners uh, sought to uh, sought to bring their franchise. So you wrote that there was a lackluster response to the Braves. And you also said it could that kind of parallels to the early years of pro sports in Houston. Yeah, I, I think I think in many respects it does. I mean, I think I think it's tough for a place, whether it's Houston, whether it's Atlanta. These are certainly college football country. I mean, the Oilers were immediately good in the AFL in a way the Falcons weren't. The Falcons were really dreadful for their first decade. They don't make the NFL playoffs until 1978. So in a lot of ways, if you look at the attendance of a lot of these Sunbelt cities, they tend to lag behind a lot of the more established pro sports markets. Because whether you're a person in Houston, whether you're a person in Atlanta, it's not like sports didn't exist before the big league got, big leagues got there. In both cities, there were very established interests in pro sports. And uh, Atlanta, in particular, struggled in this regard. Uh, I think Houston probably fared a lot better in certain respects just because the Oilers were better. Uh, and I think also, if you look at the bringing of pro sports to, to Houston, much of it was so built around the importance of this building, the Astrodome, that this was this real showpiece, the eighth wonder of the world and all that. In many ways, it was about building this magnificent new building that became the 
uh, showpiece for the city of, of Houston. In the case of Atlanta, Atlanta Stadium was really kind of shoddily built. They threw it up in 51 weeks. The Astrodome, by comparison, took about three years to build. Most stadiums take like three years to build. They wanted to get in as quickly as possible so they could get a big league team as soon as they possibly could because they had come to a lease agreement with the Milwaukee Braves. So Atlanta Stadium, by comparison, cost about one-third of what the Astrodome did. And in many ways, you can kind of tell. I mean, the Astrodome, for all its warts, lasted a very long time and was a very prestigious a venue for pro sports for many decades. Within a decade of being built, Atlanta Stadium was starting to fall apart, and they kind of had to glue it back together for the last, say, 15 years of its existence before it gets replaced by what becomes Turner Field uh, after the Olympics. Which uh, franchise do they get next? Uh, football, probably, right? The yes. Once, once they had the stadium in place being built and once there was word the Braves were coming the NFL had been kind of hesitant to move to Atlanta even though Atlanta has a very has had historically been a great football market Georgia Tech had been a power in the 50s and 60s the University of Georgia just down the road was emerging as a power um, but the NFL really kind of kept Atlanta at arm's length until it had a new stadium for a team all of a sudden, in the middle of the AFL-NFL rivalry, both leagues desperately want Atlanta, and it enabled Atlanta to have its choice. They picked an they picked a an NFL franchise in the in the in the in the, in the uh, they had picked an NFL franchise with the Falcons. And in many ways, this proved to be not a terribly good choice because in the AFL, they probably would have had a better chance to compete. The league was a little more wide open. In the NFL, they get in there. They're playing against very established franchises in a division with the Baltimore Colts, with the Green Bay Packers at the time period, and they just get crushed. Also, they have to build a franchise at the worst possible time to build an expansion team. If you're going to build an expansion franchise, doing it in 1965, where pro football has just expanded by 10 teams with the AFL, the potential number of good players out there is smaller and smaller. So the Falcons had very undermanned rosters for many years. They were also not the best managed team in many respects, too. The owner was a guy named Rankin Smith who owned an insurance company who everybody says was a very nice guy. But basically, he employed his cronies at the insurance company as the guys who ran his team. You had a general manager named Frank Wall in the team's early years who really had no experience in pro football at all. I mean, the Falcons in 1967 may have had the worst draft in the entire history of the NFL. They drafted 12 players, but not one of them made the Falcons roster. Next up is probably the Hawks. Yeah, the Hawks come in 1968. The Hawks relocate from St. Louis. Um, the Hawks had been a very hot property for a long time in St. Louis, had won championships there. But for a number of reasons locally, um, the team's appeal has declined. And they're in search of a new market. And uh, Atlanta has um, a guy named Tom Cousins, who's an urban developer, who wants to build a big arena in downtown Atlanta. And bringing in pro, pro basketball serves as his impetus to do so. Gives him a reason to do it, a reason to push city leaders to help him help support it financially. So bringing in pro basketball was less about people particularly being interested in basketball than it was this big real estate mogul looking for a reason to build a downtown arena. Because if you Atlanta's was becoming very suburban as a city, and building a, uh, a new arena downtown was a way, in their mind, to help try to revitalize the city. It didn't 
quite work that way. Atlanta kept becoming more and more suburban. And the Hawks, particularly in their early years, were not a good drawing team. Um, they're playing initially for their first few years at what's called the uh, Alexander Memorial Coliseum, which is the arena at Georgia Tech. It's kind of it was kind of an old rickety building, and people didn't you know necessarily want to go to games there. They build the Omni, which was a new flashy downtown arena, very modern looking arena. And still the team didn't draw especially well. Um, so it, in many ways, that proved a difficult situation, too. Why do you think that they didn't draw very well? The Falcons well, and the Braves had the same issues, but I wonder why. I, I think I think a major re issue for all of these teams is that you have a lot of people who have relocated to Atlanta during this time period. It was full of northern transplants, people from New York or Boston or Chicago or somewhere else, who maintained their loyalty to these teams where they were from. And if you go to a baseball game to this day in Atlanta and they're playing the Cubs or they're playing the Mets, you'll be struck by the huge number of hats of the opposing team there. And that's because so Many people have relocated to Atlanta over the years and maintain their affiliations to where they're from. So turning those people who just had relocated from the north into Atlanta sports fans proved a lot more difficult than people envisioned. Just because it said Atlanta across their chest and these people lived in Atlanta suburbs didn't mean they were going to be fans of the teams. At the same time, there's also the issue that the local people there already had all kinds of sports interests before pro sports got there. Mm -hmm. um, are you are you all of a sudden going to give up being interested in college football or stock car racing or going golfing or enjoying boating because there's big league baseball there? Um, I mean, for a lot of people, the choice between sweating it out in the stands on a 100 degree day at Atlanta Stadium and being on a boat in suburban Atlanta, uh, enjoying the nice weather um, in a cooler venue, people chose boating. Um, the kind of people who could afford to go to ball games regularly often preferred leisure that was outside the city. There's also the issue with Atlanta was a very suburban city, too. And this population of the city of Atlanta was approximately 400,000 as the metropolitan area grew to in 1970 to about 1.8 million. There's like four and a half million people in metropolitan Atlanta now. But that's only like 25 percent of the city's population living in uh, living in the city. For people who are commuting into work, commuting back home, the idea of commuting back in on a summer night to go sit in a sweaty stadium was not terribly appealing for a lot of people. Um, so I think the profoundly suburban character of Atlanta um, proved a real detriment to a lot of those teams. And it's not like you could take public transportation or anything either. Atlanta does not have a subway or anything until 1979. Suburban residents, for a lot of reasons, fought it for very many years. So it's, um, I, th I think in many ways, it's a product of lifestyle choices in the region that made it tough for these teams to really get a foothold. And it also wasn't like there was this whole thing like, oh, my dad took me to the Braves game, so I'm going to take my son there. There's not the same kind of sentimental quality. I think if, if you look at like Yankees fans or Red Sox fans, there's this multi-generational kind of sentimental quality to their fandom that didn't exist with the, uh, that didn't exist with the Braves because they just got there. Um, I think it probably has started to to some extent now, but it still is a bit different than the just the long term ties that bind people together in a lot of the cities in the uh, urban north. When you mentioned that, you know, the people that live in the city have loyalties to other teams, that kind of reminded me of San Antonio, 
Uh, mo- that's where I live. I live in San Antonio, and most people here are Cowboys fans, and some of them are Texans fans. And how passionate are they going to be about getting a new team? In my opinion, you know, as big of an Astro fan as I am, if they put an MLB team here, it wouldn't take very long for that to be my team. And so I can, I can see the struggle that they, they would have, you know, but I, I don't know. I, I just think if they love sports, you know, I think it may be different back then. It's probably not as fanatic as it is now. Probably. But, uh, yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, but I can, I can see that. So 1972, they got an NHL team. And I had no idea they had that team. I know they have like the Thrashers or something now. Mm-hmm. Well, they did until 2011. They were there from 1999 to 2011. And they they had in many ways, and many hockey teams in the South have the same problem. There's like 10, 12,000 people who are just hardcore, incredibly passionate about it. But the problem with a lot of these teams is having a casual audience. That there weren't a lot of people, say, in suburban Atlanta who would just flip by and say, oh, the Flames are on. I'm going to spend my evening doing that. Um, yeah. There were people who, who it was their passion, who were season ticket holders. Particularly, a lot of affluent people in Atlanta loved the Hawk. I loved the Flames because it was a unique night out. It was a very popular date night uh, for affluent people in Atlanta to go to go to watch a uh, Flames game because there was really nothing like it. Many of the people did not necessarily understand hockey well, but it became kind of the centerpiece of their Friday night to go on to go to a Flames game. Bring your date to a Flames game was a very you know, attractive, kind of upscale, prestigious way to spend an evening. So the Flames, were, were they an expansion team? Yes, I know, they were. I know, okay, so, see, I had no idea that they were Atlanta. I, I just know them as Calgary. And the only well, reason I know that is because of, like, playing an NHL game on Nintendo or something. Well, the story with them goes, essentially, in 1967, the NHL only had six teams. The NHL saw what was happening with other sports. You had football had expanded greatly. The NBA was expanding. Major League Baseball was expanding to other parts of the country. So the NHL radically expanded to 12 teams. They doubled the size of the league in one year. And the other owners, what they really liked, the old owners, was the expansion money because each team had to pay a couple of million dollars to join in. So the NHL ownership started to get greedy. In 1970, they expand again, they add two more teams to the league. They add the Vancouver Canucks and the uh, Buffalo Sabres. Then, as hockey is building this broader and broader audience, they face a competitor league called the World Hockey Association, a big, well-financed league with 14 teams across North America. Houston's first entry into hockey is actually the result of this, the Houston Arrows, uh, which had Gordie Howe on them for a bit. Um, as this is happening, Atlanta's trying to get into pro hockey, and the NHL expands again, and they pick Atlanta, not because Atlanta has any connection with hockey. There was not even one indoor ice rink in the city. You literally could not go skating in Atlanta in 1971. There was nowhere to do so. The closest place that had ever had a hockey team was Knoxville, Tennessee, had a minor league hockey team that went out of business in 1968. But Atlanta, lo and behold, gets an NHL team just because there's this war between the World Hockey Association and the NHL for new markets. And Tom Cousins, the guy who built the arena for the Hawks, the Omni, is looking for a hockey team to fill his other winter dates. You know, you've got a long winter, 
to, to fill up if you're owning a pro sports franchise. Half the games are going to be the NBA. The other half became the NHL. If you look around the, the NHL, many of those guys owned their arenas. Many of them owned the NBA team as well. So he was in many ways just following suit. And the Flames come to town and are immediately quite popular. A lot of people who are aware of the, the Atlanta Flames will say, oh, they were a joke. It was silly having a hockey team in the South. And maybe that's true. I don't know. But one thing people don't realize is the Flames were incredibly popular for the first two or three years in town. Were one of the league's better drawing teams. Almost always drew more than 10,000 people per game. And the Flames were almost immediately competitive, too. In six of the eight years they were in Atlanta, they made the playoffs, which was actually quite a trick back then. It certainly wasn't everybody who made the uh, postseason. Uh, so the Flames had a fairly competitive, good-drawing team. The issue the Flames run into is less about their own popularity and has more to do with um, more to do with issues of ownership. Tom Cousins, who owns the Flames, owns the Hawks, and also owns the Omni Arena, ended up having a major real estate bankruptcy with this larger mixed-use downtown development he built called the Omni Coliseum. It was a $90 million bankruptcy he had, and he was looking for ways to shed assets to to rebuild his uh, rebuild his um, portfolio, and he ends up selling the uh, Flames as a way to recoup some of his losses. He had bought into the NHL for about $3 million in 1972. He sells his franchise in 1980 for $20 million to oil investors in Calgary, Alberta. Um, Calgary had just built themselves a new rink in 1988. Calgary hosts the Winter Olympics. And as they're starting to build a rink for the Olympics, they end up getting a hockey team there just because the owner of the Atlanta team is looking to shed his franchise. So the Flames, despite in many ways being the most surprising in terms of their popularity team in the region, um, end up leaving town um, relatively quickly. Um, despite that, and but they're in many ways the the beginning of hockey moving to the south, moving to the southwest. That they are the first franchise really to show much success in that part of the country. So going back to that story, why is it Loserville? Is it because they just all the teams were bad? Well, it comes from a newspaper article in 1975. Um, a guy named Louis Grizzard, who was the editor of the Atlanta Constitution, wrote a two two-part series called Loserville, describing Atlanta's big league experience of its first 10 years in the league. At the time, the Flames had actually just come off kind of a bad season, so that was kind of an anomaly. But you had the Braves, who were struggling in the standings, who were the second worst drawing team in the National League. You had the Falcons, who were continuing to struggle and had and had, had a record number of no-shows the previous season. In terms of football ticket sales, almost all sales are season tickets throughout the league. So Atlanta had sold a lot of football season tickets, but people by later in the year weren't just, just weren't going to the games. If it got a little cold, if it was rainy, people just didn't show up. One time in 19, at the end of the 1974 season, the Falcons had more than 40,000 people who bought tickets and didn't show up. There were just over 10,000 people in the stands that afternoon. It was an NFL record of all these people who had bought tickets but didn't bother to show up. And the Hawks were also struggling in the standings. So Atlanta had bought, had put so much effort in the mid-1960s to becoming major league. And 10 years on, it really wasn't working out either at the box office for the teams or in the standings for the teams. So he wrote this series called Loserville. And my title is uh, riffing on that um, 
concept uh, of his article back in the mid-1970s. The book primarily takes place in the 60s and 70s. It touches what happens later on as well. But um, the title is not meant to refer to Atlanta in the present. A lot of its teams have been very successful at different times. It's more referring to that particular historical moment of Atlanta in the 1970s when all of these grand investments and plans they had didn't necessarily work out as they intended. Yeah, so the the Hawks, the Braves, and the Falcons, I mean, they're they're pretty successful franchises now, right? For the most part, yeah. I mean, they they certainly have their ups and downs. Yes. I mean, and 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 Atlanta United Soccer has been successful in recent years too. Um in many ways it over these teams survived and have found a way to uh to build an audience. Much of this can be credited to Ted Turner, though, because in the mid-1970s, the Braves were looking for a new home. The Hawks were looking for a new home. In 1976, uh, Ted Turner purchases the Atlanta Braves. In 1977, he purchases the Hawks. And they become the centerpiece of TBS, his television station, this this cable superstation. Mm -hmm. And he ends up broadcasting their games across the country, oftentimes with few people there. Year after year, he loses money on these teams, but they also also serve as the programming for his television. So in many ways, Ted Turner is the person who saves pro sports for Atlanta because he needed cheap programming for his TV station. And just going there and filming a game is a lot cheaper than setting up a bunch of television programs. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Oklahoma and we didn't have a team. So I grew up a Braves fan because they were on TV all the time. You, you chose between the Braves and the Cubs. And I just couldn't do the Cubs because they are always on during the daytime. And so I picked the Braves, uh, Dale Murphy, other guys like that. So let me ask you this. You also spoke about Atlanta kind of created the model for other cities to get the four major sports. Uh, you said San Diego, Phoenix, and Tampa Bay all kind of adopted uh, Atlanta's approach. Oh, as well as many other cities, Charlotte, Jacksonville, in some ways, New Orleans. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, basically any other city you can think of in subsequent decades has done exactly what Atlanta did in the 1960s. They have they have waived money at the major leagues, saying, "Give us a franchise." They've essentially paid their way into it. And uh, before Atlanta did this, this really wasn't the approach. Obviously, teams would move. Cities would build stadiums, but the idea that, that that the whole city leadership, the whole city government, the whole corporate establishment in the city is going to make this this major purpose in the city trying to become major league. Nobody would really thought of it in those terms before, even in the case of Houston, which is happening at the same time. In a lot of ways, it's more about building the Astrodome, this great, significant, important building, which will signify how, how far Houston has come. It's in many ways as much about that as it is about luring the teams. But in Atlanta, it was really about bringing all the teams into town because th that would then be proof that Atlanta was an important, a major city. Right. So the, uh, like the, the Astrodome, what I know about that is that's how they got their franchise, promising that they were going to build the dome. You know, getting Major League Baseball excited about, hey, you know, they're going to build this very first ever dome stadium and so that's the model you know like you were saying something about getting taxpayers to pay for it was that part of the model 
Absolutely. I mean, I mean, if you look at it, taxpayers since the mid 1960s around the country have paid roughly 12 billion dollars in 2021 dollars for stadiums in the past 40, 50 years. I mean, it's a remarkable expenditure of, of public money that's taken place. I mean, different ways or different means are used to finance it. They're a lot more clever about it than they used to be like, well, it's it's rental cars, it's taxes on cigarettes, it's fees on hotel rooms. So the idea is that it's like somebody else is paying it, somebody else is paying it from out of town. But a tax is in many ways a tax. Some, but in some way, your community is going to be paying for it at a certain point. I mean, when Atlanta did it, Atlanta used property taxes. Almost nobody does that now because it's incredibly unpopular. If you're just some mm -hmm. random Joe in town who doesn't watch sports, and all of a sudden you have to take pay out of your money directly to, to a, a finance a stadium, that, that is not particularly popular with voters. So cities have become more clever in their ways to figure out how to finance these things. Special lotteries are often a tactic used by cities, too. Yeah, that's kind of the same thing as, you know, living in a neighborhood and paying school taxes. You don't have any kids. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, very, very much so. So did you have anything else you want to add about your book that I may have missed? Because it sounds very interesting. Well, th thank you. Yeah, in many ways, it's Atlanta is used as a case study to describe something that's happened in a lot of places. I tried, this is a product of 10 years of research. Um, I go into the specifics of each of these four, four franchises, the Braves, the Hawks, the Falcons, and the Flames. But it also tells the story of the city during this time period, too, that Atlanta is this very ambitious city. It's a very diverse city, um, trying, to, trying to get its footing as, as a southern city trying to become a major city uh nationally so it's a story of that as well um it's uh it's available for pre-order now on amazon and many other fine book retailers online um it doesn't officially go on sale until early next year but you can pre-order it now and have it sent to you at the appropriate time um you can check me out on uh twitter at clayton truder c-l-a-y-t-o-n T-R-U-T-O-R, -T and uh, I'm very active there, and uh, I write for SB Nation and uh, work for Sabre as well, so I'm very happy to converse with people about the book and hope they consider checking it out. Well, all right, Clayton, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story about the book. I wish you luck with it, and uh, oh, I, I what think- What a pleasure the, coming on. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I think the story about franchises moving would be pretty nice, too. Well, in many ways, I tell that with in the I mean, there's a whole chapter that's basically the history of that. So if you're yeah. looking for the history of franchise relocating, if you're looking for the story of how stadium financing works, I this book in many ways serves many, many different purposes. And it, it basically tells you the story of both of those aspects, too. Atlanta is the, the focus of the story, but in many ways it tells those stories, too. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, like living somewhere that only has NBA. And you wish you had NFL, you wish you had Major League Baseball. And team, you know, like cities have teams, the teams leave for one reason or the other, and they get a team again. You know, it's like, give us a team, you know, quit giving them to cities that keep losing them. That's kind of, it's kind of my beef with that. Well, and you certainly, have, I mean, in terms of football, you guys have had a stadium for 20 years, a good stadium. Yeah. And we have UTSA football there. That's it. Mm -hmm. And monster yeah. trucks in January. <laughs> all right, Clayton. I appreciate it. Everybody check him out. He gave you all the info. 
And uh, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time on Astros Baseball. Thanks for listening to this episode of Astros Baseball. Be sure to subscribe to be alerted when there's a new episode. Follow Rob on Twitter at Rob Fontenot. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.